Welcome to the Voices of War, a podcast with a simple vision, to bring to life the true costs of war through the voices of those who've lived it. I'm Maz, and I speak to soldiers, academics, refugees, peacemakers, and anyone else who's been touched by war, in the hope of demystifying, and most importantly, de-glorifying it. If you like what you hear, please consider showing your support by reviewing the show wherever you get your pods. You can also support us on our Patreon or Buy Me A Coffee page. Links to both are in the show notes. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Mike Martin and retired Lieutenant General Arne Dalhaug. Both of these gentlemen have been on the podcast a number of times before, so I won't be providing lengthy introductions. I will share links in the show notes to previous episodes where you can find out more about their individual careers and achievements. But in a nutshell, both Mike and Arne have been regular commentators on the Russian invasion of Ukraine in both regular and social media. Mike is a former British Army officer who subsequently completed his PhD studying war and conflict. He has published a number of books, including An Intimate War, still one of the go-to books on understanding Afghanistan, as well as Why We Fight, a book that explores root causes of human conflict and war. Arne is a retired three-star general who was previously the Deputy Chief of Norwegian Armed Forces, served as the Norwegian military representative to the NATO Military Committee, and was the Commandant of the NATO Defence College. After retiring from the military, Arne served in a senior position for the OSCE in the non-government-controlled area in eastern Donbass in Ukraine. They both join me today for an update on the ongoing Russian invasion of Ukraine. Gentlemen, good to see you both again. Good to be here. So um, maybe we can uh, take a few minutes for a general roundup of where we are in this uh, war. And Mike, uh, maybe we can start with you for kind of a macro level uh, of where we are at the moment, uh, and then we'll go across to you, Arne. Uh, sure, yeah. So I think I think high, high level, we've seen an ever-shrinking set of Russian objectives. Uh, we started out um, with nothing less than regime overthrow, Um your listeners will remember the beginning stages of the war where they tried to make a dash for Kiev, and that didn't work. And uh, actually, they got routed north of Kiev and and left. And then they were going to look at um, taking the the Black Sea coast or the southern coast, so linking up this this area where they've been since 2014 in the Donbass to Crimea and then maybe on to Transnistria. And then that got scaled back to just focusing on the Donbass, which are these which is comprised of two regions, Luhansk and Donetsk, um, in the east. And actually, although their stated aim is still to take the whole of the Donbass, we've we've actually seen a further narrowing, really, to just one or two axes. Mm. Um, and so your listeners will have heard that, you know, the news in the, over the past two weeks is this, this city called Sverdonetsk. It's the biggest population centre in Luhansk. Um, important for symbolic reasons actually more than military reasons um actually there's a much more there's a riverbank behind it and a big hill and another city Mm. um to the west in ukrainian hands which is much more defendable um but because it's this sort of you know last big population center in luhansk which is half of the donbass which is obviously what the russians would say is their objective Mm. the ukrainians have decided to make a stand there and I, I, over the last couple of weeks, we've seen it go backwards and forwards, really. Um, the control of it go backwards and forwards. Um, the Russians have had to strip out 
forces from other fronts. There's probably kind of three areas of military activity around Kharkiv in the northeast. That's the second biggest city in Ukraine, mm, 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 uh, mm. in the Donbass and Sverdonetsk, and in the south in Kherson. And they've had to strip forces out of the other two fronts to make progress uh, in the Donbass. And finally, you know, whilst the Russians have made some small amounts of progress in the east because they've had to strip out forces elsewhere, mm, mm. particularly in the south, the Ukrainians have... Um, managed to push them back about 10k which mm. it's about the same distance that the russians have managed to move them in um in the east and uh, so it'd be interesting to see what happens over the next month or so whether the ukrainians will be able to take Kherson back which is this city in the south that was really the only big city that the russians have controlled since the beginning mm. and it was where they were going to have this big referendum and everyone's going to going to get annexed they're all going to join russia mm. and the reason for that is it's really important because it's the it's the only place where the Russians have a foothold north of the Dnipro River. And this mm. is this big river, most strategically important waterway in Ukraine, which runs from the south by Crimea all the way up to Kiev, runs through Kiev in the north. Mm. And if the Russians hold Kherson, it makes it much easier in either this conflict or a future conflict to take another chunk out of Ukraine. Whereas if the Ukrainians take it back, and as I said, they've had this counteroffensive over the mm. last few weeks, um, then that makes their country much more defendable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they lose. The, well, the Russians lose the fo- foothold. Uh, Arne, what are you? Uh, what are your thoughts? Well, I mean, uh, basically, I share the overview here that uh, Mike uh, gave us. Uh, I think it's important to uh, to emphasize that uh, the Russian forces. I mean, they were spread from the Sea of Azov and up to Kiev along the border at mm-hmm. the, the very beginning. But now, I mean, basically, uh, what we see is uh, fighting going on uh, in something that's about the size of a stamp on an envelope. Mm. If you compare <laughs> to, to, to the rest, rest of Ukraine, mm. and now uh, mm. this area very well, I've been there for uh, for three years, and uh, and of course, uh, the big uh, advantage with Severodonetsk is uh, it's really urban terrain, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, around a lot there so uh, you can re- really get a lot of, uh, of urban terrain where you can defend from mm. and of course uh, as Mike mentioned you had this uh, other city close by Lysychansk mm-hmm. which is actually quite extraordinary <laughs> high level above Severodonetsk so if they want to attack the Russians attack from Severodonetsk and uh, into Lysychansk uh, after if they take Severodonetsk they will have to cross the river and then they will have to enter up a steep hill. Mm. So it, it's a very defendable area in uh, in several Also, I think uh, very much I share the opinion that uh, it's mostly for symbolic reasons that Severodonetsk is thought about nowadays. Mm. I, uh, I admit I consider uh, a few square kilometers more or less in, in Donbass. I don't see that of any strategic military strategic uh, importance. But uh, what I've said several times lately, and uh, Mike alluded to it, is that Kherson is actually the area mm. to watch. And of course, uh, if they lose uh, the foothold uh, east and north of uh, the river, we also had the problem with the water intake into Crimea, which was mm. uh, closed for, uh, for eight years. And now the water is, is flowing again. And if they have this ambition to go to Transnistria, I mean, if they lose the foothold on the north and uh, west of the of this big river, mm-hmm. I mean, that will be immensely more complicated to uh, yeah. establish a land corridor from uh, Mikolaev mm-hmm. to uh, 
to Transnistria if they just have to give up Kherson. And uh, and of course, the other interesting part of Kherson and a couple of other places is that you still have a pretty huge Ukrainian population present. Otherwise, mm. I mean, it's just a heap of rubbish uh, around, basically. Mm. So there is, there is no one there, at least not yeah. any significant number. But uh, in Kherson, you still have a city that is actually um, uh, up and running. And you also see that the first signs of... Um, of an insurgency going on there and also in uh, Melitopol. Mm. So uh, it's, in my mind, probably more interesting to watch in uh, in uh, the long and medium term than what's actually going on exactly mm. on this small stamp around Severodonetsk in Ilovsk. Mikey, would you can I, Ma- I'm sorry, yeah. Maz, I know it's your podcast, but actually, can I ask a question? About Please. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> of course. Well, I don't, uh, and uh, maybe we can Ma- just like cut Let me just introduce just... my co-host, uh, Mike Martin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, like, uh, that's exactly it. It's it's the, a, a, a symbolic target in the East versus mm. something mm. of real military value in the South. Mm. And if you look at all the media, all mm. of the media is focused on the yeah, east. Yeah. So what yeah. why is yeah. that, Adelaide? Like what what's going on? Well, I <laughs> I guess the problem is that people don't listen to us. <laughs> <laughs> Al Jazeera think, bookers, yeah. BBC yeah. bookers, we're available. Yeah, but, uh, yeah that's yeah. right. Yeah. There's, there's a but small I mean, feed involved, uh, but uh, yeah, reach yeah. out. I mean, uh, <laughs> honestly speaking, I, I, I think that it has to do with the fact that uh, Putin uh, on the 21st of September, I mean, uh, uh, February, he promised this whole uh, Luhansk and Donetsk Oblast they mm. should become so-called yeah. independent states, you know, and all that. And yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I imagine that is probably the reason why Putin is pressing the offensive in this area. Yeah. Because yeah. He, he, want, he wants to say one day that, uh, okay, I have, I mean, accomplished what I promised. Yeah, and mm. now you're liberated. In, I mean, big quotation marks. So uh, it's in, it's it's yeah. it's actually a tactic we've seen from, and, and the Ukrainians are holding them there whilst they make gains elsewhere, which mm. is a tactic that we've seen before. So they held the Russians in Mariupol. They tied down lots of combat units mm. in Mariupol. Absolutely. Whilst they mm. were doing things elsewhere in the country, mm. and again, mm. what we see here now is around Kharkiv and around you know Severodonetsk. We see them holding the Russians, attriting them, trading space for mm-hmm, time, mm, and attriting mm. the Russian forces whilst they're actually mm. pushing in other areas. And it's also interesting because Zelensky is obviously in on the plan, obviously because he's the he's the Ukrainian boss. But he's, if you listen to all of his mm, mm. pronouncements in international media, mm. he's talking about how Zelensky is the battle for the. You know, he can't speak in grander yeah. terms about it. it's the battle for the heart of the. This is yeah. where it's going to be. This is the decisive point. We will stand. And yeah. I just. Yeah, you know, and that's partly obviously to drag weapons out of the West, which have kind of slowed recently, and that's fair enough. Um, but I think it's also partly to make everyone focus on it, whilst mm. actually they they make some really useful gains elsewhere. Well, it's one of the principles of war, right? Deception, and I guess if that's what uh, uh, you know what uh, what they're doing. So, so, so what you're both suggesting, the Severodonetsk is uh, is merely a, a distraction. Both geopolitically, yeah. Uh, whilst Kherson yes, uh, might be the the real the real thing to look for. 
Yeah, that, that, that's the most, in my mind, the most strategic area I have some uh, right now. But I, I think the, the Ukrainians, as you alluded to, Mike, actually they have developed uh, quite a shrewd uh, strategy because mm-hmm. they have been delaying the Russian forces along around several bonus with uh, mm-hmm. maybe not more than a couple of brigades. Mm-hmm. Uh, the most, and, uh, and even this pocket that you can see slowly being... Uh, formed Closed. and uh, yeah. taking place on the map over the last month. Mm. And, and you should remember that either the Russians have been attacking several dollars for a lot more than a month. I mean, the disastrous river crossing didn't mm. count yeah. the first day, you know. I mean, that happened yeah. on the 8th or 9th of May. So uh, the, for, for more than a month, wow. yeah, yeah. yeah. for more than a month, I mean, they hardly have had any progress in this area. We are talking mm. about few kilometers at the best. Mm. So, uh, and uh, I'm pretty sure that uh, this is what the Ukrainian uh, wants uh, want the Russian to do, and they can apply economy of force and hope for uh, more Western weapons to arrive, and mm. yeah. also uh, yeah. trade, uh, get some more extra time to train up uh, yeah. Ukrainian military personnel. And as you said, the urban terrain favours a defender, mm. right? So mm. in open Absolutely. terrain, you need three to one, let's say, mm. if you're an attacker mm. against a defender. In urban terrain, they can go up to seven to one or mm. ten to one, yeah. you know? And yeah, the Russians we, are... Mm. We've sort of seen... I was just reading an article, actually, before we came on, about the uh, press ganging. So whilst Russia is not having a general mobilisation within Russia, within those to, in Luhansk and the, you know, the Donetsk People's Republic and the Luhansk People's Republic, which are these things that were created mm. in... Mm. 2014 that no one recognizes mm. they have had military law since the beginning of the conflict and they have been conscripting people in and there are stories of people being picked up off the street made to sign papers and then three days later literally three days later with no military training they find themselves standing next to mm. russian soldiers in Severodonetsk. Mm. you know that these are not the actions of an of an army that has their yeah. shit together yeah exactly yeah and i mean i guess that's that's the other question i mean we're seeing also figures about the casualties uh yes on one side we know that ukrainians are uh, i think zelensky made the point you know between 80 to 100 uh but there are reports of russians losing about 300 per day i mean firstly how credible do you think those numbers are and then secondly how sustainable uh, is this i mean you know where do you keep drawing troops from i mean i think some of the figures are was well, 32,000 uh, soldiers that um, or conscripts that Russia has lost. Uh, you know, what, what impact is this having, and how, how sustainable uh, is this type of aggression by Russia? Um, maybe yeah, either of you or both can answer. Well, I mean, for, first of all, we should we should remember that uh, Russia is basically fighting with a scaled down peace establishment uh, force, and uh, mm. they have able to expand the force very much, which means that every brigade will just have two battle groups available mm. at the back, and even they are uh, are uh, not banned up to um, up to what the numbers should be. Should be. Yeah. So, uh, so in, I mean, we, we all know that in general, uh, the Russian units are pretty lean on infantry, and uh, yeah. even if they are manned up to uh, <laughs> up to the peacetime establishment, mm. so they are. They are fighting uh, with uh, battalions that are probably half the size of what they mm, should be. Yeah. Which means that if you hear that you have three or four uh, battalion groups uh, up against you, I mean, the number of uh, T-34 
people will be far less than uh, the norm should uh, mm. be. So uh, they, they're, they're very short on uh, on trained and motivated personnel. What they're mm. not short is uh, artillery and ammunition. Mm. Uh, so I'm quite often joking in saying you should almost remember that the Russian army is basically an artillery army with a few tanks and a few uh, APVs. Mm. Mm. <laughs> mm. I mean, yeah, Mike, sorry, jumping. Well, I was going to say, is this, Arnie's nailed it, like, it's this idea of a balance, when we talk about combined arms forces, they need to be balanced, mm. right? So, you know, tanks, artillery and infantry each have weaknesses and strengths, mm. and so they need to be, and they're very, the, the Russians are very infantry light, so this battalion tactical group of, say, a thousand might only have 150 or 200 infantry, and that's why they came unstuck. Yeah. In the initial invasion, because they just got hammered with all the anti-tank weapons, because they didn't have any infantry out mm. screening mm. ahead of their vehicles, mm. and um, supporting the close battle. And, yeah, of course. Yeah. Right, and yeah. again, we look at Severodonetsk. So you, you need infantry in urban warfare. You need infantry. That is, you, you need the other bits as well, but you absolutely mm. essential mm. is infantry. Mm. And um, if you're being shelled, it is possible, it's very uncomfortable. You can dig into the ground. Mm. You can survive artillery barrages. Not everyone's going to survive, but, you, you know, you can keep your force preserved if you've prepared defensive positions. Mm. And we saw, you know, we saw this 100 years ago in the First World War, right? People would dig into trenches and they survived. And that and that hasn't changed. Um, so, again, you know, you see these sort of interesting uh, and again, you know, the Ukrainians are very infantry heavy, which enables them to defend very well, which we've seen consistently. But it makes it harder for them to go on the offensive mm. because for the offensive, you need maneuver and to create maneuver, you need armored vehicles and tanks and all the rest of it. So we sort of see both of the armies, the way they're configured is creating what we see on the ground. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I hadn't really thought about it that way. I mean, we're seeing the kind of uh, two types of, uh, you know, they're both fighting a different type of war. Uh, and of course, yeah. that's having a, mm. a, a, a massive impact. Uh, I do find it interesting, though, that Russia is uh, is so artillery heavy, uh, which is why they're prepared to just have raw recruits come in and with a basic training. Uh, uh, but that surely has to have an impact, both on the the capability of that armed force, uh, but also on the unit cohesion. I mean, if you're just if you're forming units on the march, so to speak, surely that has to have an impact on how cohesive, how effective. Uh, those combat units are. Never mind the, the morale of those troops if they're dying, you know, 300. Uh, what, what impact is this having? I mean, how, you know, how, how do you both see that uh, and and particularly the, this kind of importance of morale? I mean, I, don't, I just, I, 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 I see this as, like, there's an ineffective force, like being mm. under mortar fire and, and sorry just to, right. the, the reason i'm asking this the reason i'm asking is because we're yeah. hearing more and more that you know have we underestimated uh russian incompetence you know uh are the russians <laughs> you know regrouping are we seeing them you know uh better concentrate their force of course you know we've seen the failures uh, from the start of the war and the invasion uh are they now better at kind of concentrating their firepower uh you know using uh, uh you know their limited forces in a better way yeah but i mean okay so there's lots of questions there on your first question about <laughs> forces that have just been conscripted the reality is <clears throat> coming under fire for the first time is uh, an experience to put it mildly getting mortared for the first time that, that's starting to get quite scary and 
it basically if you just got civilians and they're being mortared by the ukrainians uh, to your point about cohesion and morale which are you know small unit cohesion and morale really are mm. critical critical fundamental underlays of fighting power along with logistics um th- those units are going to dissolve people are going to run away like it's not far for them to run away right they mm. just need to get mm. out of there they probably need to you know 100k and they're back home and they can go and hide out in their aunts until mm. the whole thing's blown over <laughs> yeah right yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like the, <laughs> they speak the language you know it's easy for them to get away like what are the russians going to shoot them in the back i mean this is i mean they probably are they but it's could, not the yeah, second world yeah. war <laughs> yeah. um i can't remember what you said. maybe i don't know i don't know what your second question was i mean it's a, it was all kind of mixed into that it was it, that, that was the yeah. primary one i mean i think that's the impact so sorry i mean you go I mean, uh, ob- ob- obviously, what what we have seen is uh, is a force of very very low uh, low morale, and uh, and a lot lot of deserters uh, have uh, been uh, seen around uh, trying to get away from combat and all that. But uh, okay. again, uh, just just that, then let me return to the fact that I mean there is some small incremental progress going on with the Russian forces in the area of, of several Donetsk. But we we should remember, as I mentioned earlier, that this this has been this fight has been ongoing since late April, early May, mm. and it. I mean, we are talking about at the best a couple of kilometers across the center of Severodonetsk, and and they have mm. concentrated a lot of their forces there. They have thinned out in Kherson, as Mike mentioned, and also in uh, other areas, and where they are mm. basically now building fortified positions to defend. Because they don't have any offensive capacity in uh, in those areas, because everything is concentrated in in Donbas, mm. and even with this absolute maximum concentration of forces and artillery, still they have hardly made any progress for uh, for more than a month. Mm. So even if they are making progress, I mean, it's so slow and so incremental, and they are really taking heavy casualties in this. Uh, yeah in this fight uh, in the urban terrain of several yeah. dons. So uh, it, this has been, uh, been a disaster and no, no success story at all. Mm. It's, I'm, I'm just looking at some, uh, the Institute for the Study of War mm. every day publishes these maps of control, which I'm sure mm. people on Twitter have seen. And um, they just quite, they just collate reports and just sort of shade in the map. And it's quite interesting. So if you look around, um, Popasna, which was where they started to kind of make this salient mm. um, to try and cut around behind several nights, basically to create a pocket where the Russians are trying to create a pocket. Yeah. They've the maximum extent of that advance is about 20 kilometers, and it's about 10 kilometers wide. So 20 kilometers advance on a kind of 10 kilometer wide salient. Mm. And then if you look down in the south, um, in Kherson, the width of the front that you, the Ukrainians mm. have advanced on is about a hundred kilometers. Mm. So it's a mm. hundred kilometers wide, and in some places it is twenty or twenty-five kilometers deep. In deep, other places, yeah. it's only sort of ten kilometers deep, or, or, or you know, it's eight kilometers deep. So actually, in it's actually more territory. The Ukrainians have taken more territory of and the Russians in the south than the Russians have taken. Yeah. Yeah, mm. exactly. Then they grew up in the east, which is interesting. I mean, it, it seems to be the emotional attachment to, to I guess, Donetsk and Severodonetsk uh, by the Russians might be the the sword that they fall on, or at least that's what we're, um, uh, I guess, in many ways hoping. The, the, 
obviously the Russians are discussing these issues mm. also quite a bit. Uh, I mean, a lot of the military bloggers have questioned the wisdom in uh, thinning out in the area of South and Tuerson, mm-hmm. and then, I mean, move that large forces to to the fight in Donbass. Mm-hmm. Because obviously, as we both have touched upon uh, so far, there is no particular strategic military advantage if you have several Donetsk or not, mm-hmm. or if you have Kamatosk or not. It's mm-hmm. just a few more square kilometers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so would Ukraine be prepared to trade the area uh, permanently? No, I don't think so. For uh, for for the time being, we should also remember that almost all of what was the government-controlled area of Donetsk Oblast is still government-controlled area. Uh, the the only progress they have made is basically in in Luhansk, and not in in Donetsk uh, Oblast. Mm-hmm. Mm. That has to do with the fact that they came in north of the line of contact. So they mm. didn't have to breach the line of contact to get into Luhansk. They crossed the border between Russia and, and Ukraine. They didn't mm. come through these uh, entities that uh, Putin uh, created. So uh, still, uh, still, most of Donetsk is on the government, uh, government-controlled area. Mm. Right. Right. So, I think so on this kind of like yeah. trading thing as well. <clears throat> there's so much chitter chatter, um, basically amongst heads of state who should know better, and mm. you know even people like Kissinger. I'm very surprised about. He's saying, mm. well, you know, oh, yes. we should have a deal here. Mm. You've got to trade. You know, the Ukrainians have got to trade. You know, whatever. You know, Luhansk for you know a peace deal or whatever. But. I think, and you know, be realist, guys, is the kind of call. Like you're facing overwhelming force. Be real about this, you know. But actually, that's not the proper realist interpretation of what's going on. The realist interpretation of what's going on is, if Russia is not put back in its box, mm. then it will come and it do this again. again. Yeah. Well, we've seen it. We've done it, Georgia, uh, the Crimea. I mean, this is time and time right, again. exactly. Yeah. And the reason we're fighting this war is because we didn't put Russia back in its box mm. after Georgia. After Crimea, mm. after Syria, mm. after you know, mm. Finland put Russia back in its box in 1941. Mm. There haven't been any problems from Russia for Finland, mm. and I think that it's the same. And ultimately, the from the Ukrainian strategic point of view, I think they have a trade. Either we, you know, we're going to lose a hundred thousand civilians now or something fighting this war, civilians and military. But if we win, by win, I mean. The, regain control of their sovereign territory then that will then uh, you'll probably you know they'll join the eu or whatever they'll mm. get maybe get security guarantees maybe they'll join nato that then solidifies their country and they're fine for the next mm. generation or two yeah yeah some kind of peace treaty can only ever be a frozen conflict and it basically invites putin or whoever's next to take another chunk out of land that it you you know it can be spun in Russia that these are historical lands that have always been part of Russia and so mm. on and so forth. Mm. So I mm. think that that is the I think that that is the realist appreciation of what mm. the strategic situation is for Ukraine, and it's it's not nice. But strategy is not nice. It's mm. real. And often I think we confuse what's humanitarian or what's going to save the most lives now with a kind of realist approach. But actually. Mm. 
that's not a realist approach because you'll lose those lives. You might not lose them now, but you'll lose them mm. the next time mm. the Russians try and take a chunk out of some. And then some, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I guess which is why you know, what, what question then for both, both of you is: What do you make of Macron's uh, statements? Uh, you know, to not humiliate Russia because that's that's kind of the you know the the at least the French stance at the moment for that very reason that you know it's a it's there's 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 a trade off here of you know the potential risk we need to stop this war because the risk of humiliating Russia is so great because of, you know it's a nuclear armed superpower and and yeah. that's that's kind of pushing against what you're what you're saying there the, you know it, it's kind of the, the counter you know realist threat uh of you know might is right you know uh putin might ultimately you know push the red button um, what, what do you yeah. both make of that um, yeah I'm, I'm not scared about the red button to, to mm. be honest mm. and uh, and i i think it was pretty stupid what uh, macron said because actually that uh it makes us underestimate what France is actually doing because France is giving mm. a lot of support to, to yeah. Ukraine. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, Macron has had these unfortunate comments before when he traveled to see Putin at the end of the long table, you know, before mm, the yeah. war, war broke out. He came up with this word of Finlandization when, uh, when he traveled back from Moscow. I mean, where, where did he pick that up from? And, uh, and now he had this interview, and then he suddenly uh, jumped up with this idea that Putin should not be humiliated, whatever that could possibly uh, mean. It's difficult to, to, to imagine what it could mean or not mean. But mm. it gives the impression that uh, he's talking about some future Russia without taking into consideration what is actually going on in Europe. I mean, a large-scale war. Mm. And uh, so um, it puts France in a difficult uh, position. And, uh, and I certainly agree, Mike, with the, your assessment of, uh, of a possible Russian behavior in the future. I, I don't think in, uh, any kind of uh, peace agreement signed with Russia is of any value whatsoever. Mm. I mean, why should Russia suddenly, at this time, for the first time in its four or 500 years of history, actually live up to something they signed uh, signed on. Mm. There's mm. No, no reason to believe that. Uh, mm. Why should they exactly at this time start to keep what they have promised? I mean, they signed gazillions of treaties, the UN Charter, all the treaties in the Helsinki uh, process about the security architecture of Europe. They signed and guaranteed the uh, Ukrainian territory in the Budapest Memorandum in 1994. I mean, if, if Russia had just lived up to just one mm. of the agreements they have signed, there wouldn't be any war. I mean, just one of them. I'm very sure that the Ukrainians understand that very well. And in their approach to what kind of treaty they could possibly imagine, you can easily see that they don't trust the Russians. And of course, mm. I mean, who trusts the Russians? I mean, nobody. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's really interesting. I mean, what what are you seeing or hearing from inside Russia? I mean, because surely, surely this has got to be raising some alarm bells uh, within with you know both the Russian people, but also uh, the chain of command, the military chain of command. They've got to be you know cognizant of this. I mean, the the, the, the war is not going well by any stretch of imagination, even though they're making some small progress, but. 
you know, how much longer can it take and how much can the people take? I mean, are the sanctions uh, having an impact? Uh, are we seeing any change of narrative inside Russian borders? So who do you want us? Um, uh, uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, b- both of you, but yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, okay, let, let, let's just jump back to, to, uh, to May 9 about uh, um, was all kind of rumors that Putin would uh, state or mm. uh, say he would do on, uh, on the 9th of May for uh, the anniversary of... Um, of uh, the victory in the Great Patriotic mm. But basically, he, he came across at the end of the day with absolutely no ideas. He, he had absolutely no ideas, no nothing that mm. could have any kind of impact on, uh, on uh, the front line in Ukraine. Mm. And, and basically, nothing has happened in, in Russia in between. They are basically doing the same sluggish style of warfare mm. that they did one and a half two months ago mm. i mean there, there's no change to it and uh, and uh, and for sure if you if you look at all the, the desperate uh, ways they try to recruit people obviously the shortage of competent personnel is is really really uh, bad uh, bad to deal with mm. but I, I don't think putin can actually mobilize because uh, up, up to now, basically, the soldiers that have been dying, they are coming from the more poor districts in the east. You can mm. also see yeah, yeah, on yeah, their yeah. face that they are not, uh, not Russians. Non-ethnic but, Russians, yeah. Yeah, no, not no ethnic Russians. But of course, if you mobilize, uh, that means that the sons of the middle class around Leningrad and, um, and uh, St. Petersburg and Moscow will also be involved in the war. And you have was to that a Freudian a slip? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and, and of course, and thought of we were back there. Uh, we went back a century. Back, back in the old days, you know. And, uh, and, uh, and, and it's kind and of, of appropriate. Course, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And, it, it, uh, and you also get get the problem with taking all those people out out of the economy. Mm. Uh, mm. Has never done that since the Second World War. Mm. So. There are all kind of pitfalls around starting a mobilization. And mm. also you can question if it's at all possible to train people that you mobilize. Because in, in the Russian army, you don't have training centers or, or huge training units as we have in the West. Mm. The soldiers train in the units where they are going to stay. And those units are already in Ukraine. So <laughs> there is no uh, possibility to train soldiers and the instructors well they are the officers that are uh, dying in in ukraine mm. so uh, when if even if you mobilize i mean soldiers would just be hanging around and couldn't be taken care of you can also mm. question if they have enough uh, reserve material to train them because they're already sending t-62s to the front <laughs> yeah yeah there's something to be said <laughs> about st- training uh, with two- <laughs> the battle yeah yeah. But they started with two two hundred k, right? And if you assume in a mechanized army, I mean, I don't know. It, if it was the U.S. Army, which is more technological, the the tooth to tail ratio, so i.e. the ratio of fighting troops to the uh, to the support troops, so logisticians, mm-hmm. intelligence, mm-hmm. meds, you know, everything that's not kind of holding a bayonet, that might be ten to one in the American Army. Let's say it's you know, even if we say it's five or six to one 
uh, five, let's call it five to one to make the maths easy in the mm. Russian army. So they started with 200. That means they only got 40,000 fighting troops. Mm. Right. And then what was the casualty figure yeah. you came up with earlier? Well, that was 30,000. Yeah. So and then it means they got 10,000 of their original troops left. And they're obviously spread out all around all the areas that they are, Kharkiv. And Khorsan, are rapidly dying. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, yeah. but, and then, but then that's why they, you can see why they're press gang teenagers mm. in Donetsk and Luhansk, because they literally don't have anyone. Mm. they can't though the, the infanteers are the ones that they can press gang off the street here's a rifle get on with it you can't press gang a doctor mm. or an artilleryman or an, an intelligence specialist mm. right because they take time to train so the mm. ones that have the shortest training time are the ones that you press gang mm. Mm. it's really interesting i mean the, the what i'm hearing you both say is that that you know this potentially could all unravel very very quickly um, so what does Ukraine need for this to occur? I mean, we, we mentioned before, well, Mike, I think you made the point that, um, you know, while Ukraine's been getting a lot of weapons, that's slowed down uh, at the moment. Are we, is Ukraine getting enough support? And, and if not, what does it need? Uh, I know, uh, Adna, you've been quite vocal uh, on some of your social media and even some of the kind of regular media commentary uh, on this, but maybe start with Mike and then go across to, to, to you, Adna. Uh, I mean, what I've noticed is that just it, just look at it in PR terms first, rather than it, Zelensky seems to move from weapons category to weapons category. So we mm. started out with uh, anti-tank weapons, didn't we? And then and then mm. it was kind of I think there was vehicles for a bit, and then it was artillery, and now it's the latest one I heard today is air defense. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I wonder if 2,600 and, you know, four reasons or something, why, or so, you know, the figures, <laughs> undoubtedly yeah. wrong, but that he, he you know, I'm misquoting him, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he never asks for, like, drones, which I would be asking for, like, thousands of tiny drones <laughs> that you can... Um, the ones that have got explosives attached to them that you can fly over. They're basically little like suicide insects mm. that you can drop on. Um, so look, what do they need? I mean, yeah. Uh, I mean, artillery is one where that's what they've been asking for for a long time is obviously a good way of doing counter battery fire. So if you're being fired out with artillery, you find out where they're firing, you use a computer basically in a radar to mm. trace back the flight path of the shell that's coming towards you. So you can fire back at the, the thing i mean fair enough the problem with artillery is it has an unbelievably huge logistics footprint yeah. so it's not just the once you've got the guns you can fire off a shipping container full of shells in a couple of hours and then what and mm. so i you know okay that's what they're asking for <sighs> means you've got to continually have shipping containers full of shells being driven across ukraine that's why i kind of wonder whether and maybe they are being supplied these things but no one's talking about it but you mm. know small drones and particularly as nato really dominates the the surveillance and you know the electronic mm. warfare and the signals intelligence space in ukraine i wonder whether there isn't actually a, a lot of small drones going across that are helping spot targets and mm. queue assets mm. onto you know all that kind of stuff but no, it's a yeah. cheap 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 um yeah, cheap way to assist as well. I'm sure it's a briefcase. Sure, uh, uh, yeah, it's a briefcase. Yeah. You know, yeah. and then it's once you've got it, it's good. That's it. Yeah. You doesn't need. You know, you can charge it up off a USB. Yeah, you, we've seen you don't the, need shipping containers worth of. Yeah, yeah, we've seen what the Bayraktars have done. Uh, their, their shares have gone through the roof, undoubtedly. Uh, Adne, what do you uh, <laughs> what do you think? I, I pretty much agree with what uh, what Mike said about uh, 
I, I, I would have loved to have some more drones if I was a Ukrainian commander. Because mm. uh, if you have drone, uh, if you have the Switchblade 600, for example, just to use that one, mm. I mean, you, you, really, you don't necessarily need artillery for counter battery fire. You can mm. use a drone also. <laughs> so yeah. there, there, are many, there are many ways ways to do it. And uh, what I hope they get is electronic warfare equipment that can block uh, signals from uh, the Russian guns and uh, up to uh, up to uh, space. Uh, they do have their own uh, mm. GPS uh, system, so uh, yeah. blocking that could be very could be very effective. And uh, also, I tend to think that it, I mean, you just need to have uh, a certain number of long-range artillery or rocket artillery for counter-battery fire before the Russians will have to behave in a much mm. different way, tactically speaking. You don't mm. actually need to fire at them. They will have to start to behave like they could be fired at, which means that when you position mm. a gun, you cannot be there for a long time, which mm. means that you cannot build up a lot of uh, ammunition in mm. one spot mm. and plan on hanging around there firing for the rest of the mm. day. Have mm, to move mm, it all the time, both mm, mm, the, uh, the gun and all the ammunition, and that by itself will lower the number of grenades that you can fire yeah. significantly. Yeah. You mm. really don't fire at them at all. You just have to start make them start behave like they will be fired at. <laughs> yeah, it hugely exposes <laughs> the other Russian so. weakness. Mm. Mm. I was going to say hugely exposes the other Russian weakness, which is mobile mm. logistics. Mm. As soon mm. as you force them to deliver stuff along small roads or, you know, if you're moving your posts, gun posts all the time and you've got to move the ammunition with them, mm. they, then mm. their logistics has been rubbish. So it probably mm. will seize up the entire artillery uh, mm. force. Especially when you've uh, got raw recruits picked up off the street. Uh, who are now, you know, uh, uh, yeah, the yeah, ab uh, absolutely. I mean, I, I recall when I was the three year in Luhansk and uh, Donetsk, uh, they uh, usually filled up with, uh, I mean, mine, uh, mine workers that had been working in the mines, and of course, they were unemployed, so mm. they were put uh, to uh, guard, so to speak, the, the line of contact, and of course, it was well paid. I mean, they got 15,000 rubles. Uh, a month, which is mm. about twice of what a uh, teacher will mm. make in uh, this area. But of course, as military personnel, they were completely useless and drunk most of the time. But they mm. made good money. Mm. <laughs> oh. Wow. Wow. That, we're talking about their military, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> No, that I mean, look, gentlemen, that's a, that all makes sense. Maybe you can just pivot now briefly and conscious of our time. We'll, we'll try and keep this one relatively short. But uh, one one player that's uh, really trying to, I guess, wedge himself in there is uh, undoubtedly Erdogan, uh, uh, you know, with Turkey uh, or Turkey, I should say, uh, as, <laughs> as it's been requested to now mm -hmm. be known. Um, what's what What role is Turkey playing? Uh, in this war, uh, especially with the whole, uh, 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 you know, managing of uh, of grain shipments in and out, and uh, seeking seeking some sort of resolution and and, and negotiations between the two presidents, uh, that being Zelensky and Putin. What are your thoughts? Maybe Mike first, and then Arne again. Mm. Uh, so, I mean, Turkey. <clears throat> look at where Turkey is on a map. Right, it's right in the middle of everything. Mm. The Middle East is in one direction. The Caucasus are in another. Europe's in another. The Balkans are there. Mediterranean, you know, Africa is right. It's at the crossroads. And 
I think that geopolitical positioning affects the psychology of um, Turkish leaders. They're basically mm. balancing. It makes Turkey a balancing power. Um, it is always trying to not, I mean, the uncharitable way of looking at it is play off uh, outside powers off against each other. The charitable way of looking at it is that's their, that's what their saleable commodity is because they have links to everyone. Mm. They're actually able to, um, to trade uh, information and ideas and so on and so forth. Um, so what they're trying to get out of it, well, they're trying to, I mean, as usual, they're trying to get, as any country would, I, I should add, you know, they are trying to get maximum advantage out mm. of it. So, um, Right at the beginning, they closed their airspace to Russia um, or Russian troops reinforcing Syria. And obviously, Turkey and Russia have got, although despite the bonhomie, you know, they they have different strategic objectives mm. in Turkey. So that was a kind of thanks very much. We'll have that. And then they've um, been selling loads of drones and making loads of money. They've also been trying mm. to negotiate between the two sides as a kind of intermediary. Uh, they're blocking Finland and Sweden to joining NATO, but actually they won't. They'll just back down once they've got a pound of flesh. Uh, yeah, so that's just the bargaining yeah, they closed the Bosphorus Straits to put pressure on Russia. But, you know, it's, it's just great. I mean, for them, it's brilliant. They mm. can just sort of tinker with stuff to their advantage. And I don't think that they have a great... They'd like to see Russia weakened, I think, long term, because Russia competes with them in the Caucasus, in the Middle East. Um but they can, along the way, they can kind of extract some pots of gold from various different people whilst they do mm. it. Mm. I, I tend to think in much much the, the same way. Uh, we, we should, of course, recall that Turkey is very dependent on gas coming from uh, from Russia. So mm. that's uh, mm. that's a soft spot, of course. Uh, and also uh, in uh, Libya, they were fighting on uh, supporting different warlords there. Uh, they have yeah. some issues going on in Syria. Mm. And, of course, yeah. uh, the war between uh, Azerbaijan and Armenia in the autumn of 2020. Yeah. Mm. They supported, uh, of course, uh, Turkey, Azerbaijan and uh, Russia to a certain degree, Armenia, but only mm. to a certain degree. So, uh, so um, of course, uh, Turkey is, is basically in a very bad, na- bad neighborhood <laughs> compared mm. to too many of the NATO members. So, uh, so I can see that they need to do a lot of balancing. And, uh, and I agree with, uh, with Mike. I don't see that uh, they are going to block uh, Finland and, uh, mm. and Sweden for, uh, forever. Uh, I still know quite a few people in NATO headquarters. And uh, my feeling is that they are quite relaxed about that, actually. Mm. Oh, okay. uh, Sometimes this will be uh, be solved. It seems to be what they are uh, are thinking. So, uh, of course, uh, also of course, Erdogan is playing a lot of this role because uh, presidential election is coming up in mm. about one year in Turkey. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I mean, <laughs> we, we should interest never, us values, right? All they yeah, provide. Yeah, we should, we should <laughs> never forget that. <laughs> so. Uh, uh, so it will be interesting to see how uh, how uh, Turkey at the end of the day comes out of this. But I've served six years in uh, six years in top NATO positions, and I've been dealing a lot with uh, with Turkey. And uh, normally there is some kind of bargain at the uh, the end of the rainbow. Mm, mm, mm. 
Okay, well, that's uh, that's that's certainly reassuring and promising. Uh, now, what about uh, what about the dragon? Uh, we can't, uh, you know, skip a discussion on uh, uh, how China is Wales. doing. Wales. <laughs> People might not get that. Uh, you might have to explain that uh, for our non-British. Uh, so, audience. in the, the sorry, British humour. Sorry, are all of your audience are they Australians? Are they? <laughs> well, they're certainly not all British. <laughs> well, more's the pity. Surprise, um, surprise. Uh, uh, four nations that make up the United Kingdom, Northern Ireland, Scotland, Wales, and England. And uh, the Welsh flag has a has a dragon on it. Yeah. And so we talk about the Welsh dragon. Yeah. yeah. No, I was talking about the, yeah. the, the, the slightly bigger one, uh, China. The slightly bigger <laughs> one, yes. <laughs> uh, especially, I mean, I don't know if wow. you've, uh, if you've, you've probably seen the, the news of uh, Putin apparently using some uh, expletives uh, to describe G, <laughs> calling him an asshole, I believe, um, which, which, I, which I thought was rather, 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 yeah, comical, uh, I guess, when, when it comes to, you know, two world leaders. Uh, but what are you making of the, I guess, uh, the China-Russia relationship and how is China viewing this, uh, particularly in relation to Taiwan? I don't know, maybe start with you this time. Yeah, that, uh, and I can start out uh, with, with a few, a few ref- reflections. I think, first of all, that this war has shown that China is only in a very transactional relationship with Russia. And uh, Mm. obviously, uh, China is basically not supporting Russia at all, because uh, Russia is not a big trading partner for for China. It's just a couple of percent of China's uh, uh, trade is with Russia. It's about Mm. 10% with uh, with Germany. And Mm. of course, the most Important one is the U.S. Mm. So uh, Russia is not not important in that aspect. So uh, and of course it has made life much more difficult for uh, for China, particularly in relation to to Europe, mm. because uh, China was hoping that they could have a normal, so to speak, business relationship with uh, with uh, with Europe. And uh, now this is unraveling because, first, of course, all the human rights abuses inside China itself. But, of course, the problem is if they are supporting uh, Russia in this war, this will definitely unravel completely the, between uh, China, China and Europe. So uh, they are in a difficult position. But for sure, uh, I don't think uh, the Chinese president is the kind of personality that... Mm. One will say openly, "Oh shit, I was wrong. I supported Russia. I should have done different." Mm, that's, yeah. not- <laughs> that's, not- yeah. that's for sure. So, so, uh, and also, I, I, I don't believe in this uh, theory that we can do uh, Nixon Kissinger two zero over again because uh, it was a strike of genius in 1972 when they opened up to China. But we should remember that during the Cold War, China and, and the Soviet Union, they were opponents about what the right uh, <laughs> right religion, so mm. to speak, was, the Marxist-Leninists and all that. And they fought a war in uh, 1969 up in uh, Manchuria. Mm. So, the, the, so one of the biggest diplomatic successes, I would say, for both Russia and for, for China is this new relationship between the two of them. Because this has led to the obvious uh, advantage for Russia. They don't need to keep that much forces on Mm. the Chinese border as they used to do. 
And China is not keeping that much uh, army forces along the border to Russia anymore, mm. which means they can concentrate down in the direction of, uh, of the ocean, which, of course, is of much greater importance uh, to China. Mm. Uh, I, I would say that this uh, war in Ukraine, it should have reminded Beijing about the unpredictability of war. So mm. I tend to think that Taiwan is somewhat safer than it mm. was before uh, this uh, this started. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I'd, I'd agree with that. And I think that, I think the Americans have realized that, you know, one way of viewing the war in Ukraine, <clears throat> the Russian invasion of Ukraine is a failure of Western deterrence. Mm. For, for a, you know, and deterrence gets more expensive the later you leave it. And now it's costing us an absolute fortune and it's destroying Ukraine. And we saw recently when Biden met the Quad. So right after your election, your new prime minister, mm. Albanese, mm. Yeah. one of his first actions, right, was yeah, to go the first to day, yeah. Japan, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and meet yeah. up with the Quad. Yeah. So the Quad is India, America, Japan and Australia. And it's basically a containing China security alliance. Let's be frank mm, about mm, it. Mm. And Biden said in that meeting that the US would intervene militarily to defend mm. Taiwan mm. explicitly. Mm. Yes. And previously, there has been some strategic ambiguity deliberately maintained, but hinting that there would be some, some American response and so on and so forth. But actually, America has now come out and said that, mm. which, you know, if you think about what they were doing before the Ukraine war, they was they were saying, we definitely won't get involved militarily, yeah. but there yeah. will be some other consequences, yeah. you know, talk about a green light. Mm. And um, so I think the Americans have learned that and that has changed. And, you know, if you think, if you think the Russian army is having a problem, well, the, the Chinese army hasn't fought a war for a long time. Mm. Okay. It hasn't fought a war for a long time. It suffers from many of the same structural problems that the Russian army does in the sense that there's a yes man culture, right? Mm. Problems are not rooted out. Truth is not told to power in that system. And when you have systems that are like that, that are corrupt, it's hard to get people to charge machine gun posts mm. because they don't feel that there's trust in that army. Mm. And, mm. you know, just look at the military difficulty. Russia is invading a country that is next door, has it shares a long border with, and it can choose where to cross that border mm. and drive its vehicles across. There's lots of similarities of language and all the rest of it. China and Taiwan is a similarity of language, but there's a sort of hundred mile sea crossing mm. like amphibious landings are difficult they're mm. really difficult particularly if they're contested and it, it how difficult would it be to contest that with submarines not mm. very difficult mm. how difficult mm. would we contest that with missiles mm. not very difficult and i just think that it's really 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 made china america's response but also how difficult it's been for russia has made china look at taiwan and go we've got problems now because we've based a lot of our political rhetoric on retaking Taiwan, but that's now looking really, really, really difficult. Mm. So yeah. I think a really interesting question is over the next six months or year or whatever, I mean, they're having problems with the economy, aren't they? Problems with zero COVID. Mm. But at some point, the Chinese political system will have to grapple with this idea that they told everyone they're going to go for Taiwan. And now it basically means it's basically off limits because the mm. Americans have drawn a red line. It's off limits without a major war, which yeah. the Chinese don't yeah, want. Yeah, it's in right? no one's interest. Yeah. 
one child policy means that there's lots of families with one son. Mm. Okay. They do not want a war with lots of casualties. And so how do they, how does their political system digest that reality and come up with a new narrative? I think that's a very interesting question for the next kind of 12 to 24 months in mm. China. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderfully insightful. Uh, last question uh, for both of you then. What do you consider Putin's uh, most likely uh, as well as the most dangerous course of action uh, from here on in? Well, um, one each. Yeah. From, uh, from here, I, I would say that uh, for a long time, I believe that he has now settled for occupying at least temporarily the areas where Russian forces basically are in control as we, as we speak. I say mm. basic because mm. it's not all complete control and the, the front line uh, in from Kharkov to Kherson is about a thousand kilometers mm. and it's thinly uh, defended uh, in ma many places. Uh, but in in uh, th this area is also not bigger than they could probably keep it occupied also without any kind of agreement, any kind of peace agreement mm. uh, or whatever. Uh, and uh, I have a hard time actually to see that this will end up with any kind of signed peace, uh, peace agreement, uh, in particular because of uh, the Russian war crimes and uh, mm. the general civil behavior of, of the Russian uh, armed forces. Uh, obviously, the question has been raised if you can, is it ethically acceptable to give up land and people, Ukrainian people, to, to Russian military? Mm. They are just killing civilians and torturing civilians mm. and so on. So uh, I, uh, I don't really see that uh, Ukraine will, uh, will accept that. Mm. And uh, and Ukraine has been very specific that they are not going to give up any territory. Of course, they will have to accept the military fact on the ground that more will be occupied uh, than it was before the twenty fourth mm. of February. But to uh, to give any kind of uh, recognition mm. to Russia occupying this by signing an agreement, yeah. I, I really don't see that is going to happen. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Mike. Most likely, I think, is that <clears throat> because Putin has kind of framed the objectives around Donbass and whatever, um, we're going to see him sticking to that because he's surrounded with a kind of culture of yes men. It, it's not clear where the bad news is reaching him. So I think mm. it's possible that we might see a further diminution of Russian objectives um, and a focusing on kind of trying to desperately make progress in Luhansk and Donetsk. Mm. Um, most dangerous. I mean, I think the most dangerous is kind of, it's either one of two things, isn't it? It's either the kind of, he loses his marbles and goes nuclear, which I agree with. I don't know. I just think that's very mm. unlikely. Mm. I think he grew up in the Cold War and the rules of the Cold War where you don't lose nukes. And even when, you know, in Afghanistan, the Americans supplied millions of dollars worth of equipment to mm. defeat the Soviets. Mm. And in Vietnam and Korea, you know, the opposite happened. Mm. I just, mm. uh, you know, there were lots of proxy wars that just went nowhere near nuclear. So I think that's very unlikely, although it is obviously the most dangerous. I think the other most dangerous is, is if we see a kind of collapse in Russia and 
or you know the armed forces collapse or there's some kind of coup against putin you know russian leaders don't do very well when they lose wars mm. what, how that play like the west has got no idea how to handle that mm. and how to secure obviously you know things like nuclear weapons and all the rest of it that's very difficult but what does it like how do we shape that what does that look like i don't think anyone has a clue and how do we not you know part of the reason we are where we are is because of the mistakes of the 1990s the mm. west just kind of part of that gangster capitalism mm. that mm. putin then harnessed and then harnessed for his own good but also trod on you know he's very cleverly harnessed that gangster capitalism and that was unleashed largely because of what the west did in terms of its structural programs and mm. stuff so mm. how we fail you know we've got to not make the same mistakes again mm. like it would be really good if you russia was a european power mm. that would be mm. amazing that mm. would be that should be the strategic goal of the west um yeah so which is a post, post no no but that's a no but it's a, it's a post putin world uh, obviously because uh, certainly putin will be won't be part of the europe that you envisage uh, so this is, and, and I guess that's the most dangerous part is that the the destabilizing effect um, of of a collapsed Russia is that what you mean? Uh, and what happens to to what the weapons and 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 the nukes is is that what you mean? Is the most dangerous? Uh, I think if you know if it collapses and then the nukes get who who controls them? Mm. Where do they go? Like that you know yeah it's that kind of whatever any number of films have gone into that scenario Mm. right Mm. Mm. who controls them i mean there was a big when the soviet union collapsed there was a huge effort wasn't there to track like ukraine had some of the stockpile Mm. when the soviet union fell apart and they gave it up (laughs) in return for security guarantees Mm. i mean they regret that yeah um so it's you know not if russia start you know if we don't have one governing authority in russia who ends up controlling random nukes in the middle of siberia do they sell them to like who do they sell them to i don't know yeah Uh, are there any any final comments from you yeah actually i i consider a breakdown of the regime in russia as possible if if you look at russian history i mean it's nothing new about that if you go back to 1600, which is, of course, quite a few years ago, but anyway, if, I mean, about uh, 20 years uh, at the beginning of 1600, uh, Russia was basically without any kind of uh, functioning uh, government or regime. Mm-hmm. We should also remember in more recent times, if you go back uh, to 1917, the Russian regime collapsed uh, in uh, as part of a uh, world war uh, one and mm, uh, also yeah. the mm. russian uh, soviet regime collapsed again in 1990. Mm. so it actually has a history of regime That's collapsing mm. it, mm, it's, it's the, the only great power that has collapsed twice in the previous uh, century mm. so obviously it's not vaccinated against against collapsing that mm. could happen yeah. So yeah. I agree. I mean, that uh, that's a danger that has to be taken into consideration. Mm. I guess, right, what happens if it all collapses again? Yeah, and to be honest, I mean, listening to what you both have said uh, over the past hour, it kind of seems like the 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 most likely scenario also in many ways. I mean, if the, the, the Russian military has to culminate at some point, especially given what you've discussed uh, of their weaknesses, especially if the Western support continues for Ukraine and Ukraine... Mm gains more and more 
uh, weapons and sustains the fight. Of course, they've got morale and uh, and purpose on their side. Uh, they're fighting for their lives, for their families. Uh, the Russian uh, conscripts are certainly not. Uh, and of course, yeah, Putin will keep pushing because he can't. He has to have some victory because, uh, well probably for his own ego, but also for his own political survival, he has to have a victory. So yeah. there has to be something uh, that he comes back yeah. home with. And if that yeah. uh, victory is not secured, uh, then, of course, his position is destabilised more and more. And, um, you know, sanctions have to have their effect at some point, although we are uh, seeing, uh, you know, Russia still maintaining the supply of gas, uh, et cetera. So still still has revenue coming through. Uh, but gentlemen, unless there's any final points from uh, both of you, I really want to thank you for your time. It's been a very insightful conversation. I knew it would be uh, putting the two of you together. Uh, so thank you very much for your time uh, this morning for me. I'm going to go have my first morning coffee. Uh, and I think for you both gentlemen, it's uh, it's dinner time. So uh, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks a lot for having us. Uh, enjoy the meeting both of you. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Voices of War. And since you got this far, please consider showing your support by liking and reviewing the show wherever you catch your pods. Also, if you're able, please consider showing your support through our Patreon or Buy Me A Coffee page. Links to both are in the show notes. Thank you, and until next time.